Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and I'm joined today by a woman who knows that today is St. Paddy's Day, that's P-A-D-D-Y, not St. Patty's Day with two T's. St. Patricia's Day is August 25th, people. That woman is uh, 1990-1991 season Washington Huskies uh, championship MVP Maggie Moore. Uh, Ellie Jacobs is still serving his now-extended sentence for bribing coaches uh, to fabricate bad girls' curling careers so she could be admitted to the University of Central Florida. Uh, the whole thing struck me as highly unnecessary, but he couldn't be talked out of it. Hi, Mags. Hello, Frank. Uh, and as always, folks, please be sure to leave comments and ratings wherever you get your podcast. My personal favorite is the app Stitcher. Uh, send your love, send your hate, um, but most importantly, continue to ask Ellie when he'll be back on the show. You can follow us on that. Twitter at, at taking ship with a, and that's ship with a P as in protein. Uh, you can follow me at Maggie M012. Frank at at Frank Spring and Ellie at at Ellie Jacobs. Um, and this week, um, we have a very special episode of Taking Ship, kind of like a very special episode of Blossom. Um, but, <laughs> but in reality, oh, no. it's actually not all that special. What, what, um, is, what is happening on this episode of Taking Ship? It's mostly just that we have a guest, which means that we have to be on our best behavior because oh, yeah. we have company over and you can't fight in front of company. Oh, hello. Um, <laughs> we didn't hear you come in. <laughs> well, hello there. Um, our guest today is uh, Julie Zebrak, who came highly recommended to us by our dear friend, um, Chris Liu. Uh, Julie Zebrak served in the U.S. Department of Justice from 1997 to 2015, including as Deputy Chief of Staff to the Deputy Attorney General and Agency Counsel for the Criminal Division. From 2015 to 2016, she served as Senior Advisor to the Deputy Director of Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And you can follow her on Twitter at YesMom can. Um, so hopefully we should be able to pump her for some information um, about how we can cheat on our taxes with uh, cool financial crimes or continue to bribe our future children, current children into, into college. That all sounds great. So we're going to learn about finance crimes. We're going to learn about organizing around, uh, around Yes Moms Can. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple of presidential campaigns. So stay with us. So thank you, Julie Zebrak. Welcome to Taking Ship. Thanks for having me, Frank and Maggie. I'm so excited to be here with y'all. We're excited we are, to be here with you. We're excited to be here with you. We are excited to, uh, we're excited to learn more about financial crimes. We have done several <laughs> recently. They have gone spectacularly poorly, and we are in desperate need of advice and help. Uh, so uh, let's, let's actually, let's, this was your area of practice, particularly when you were at Treasury. And when we talk about people committing elaborate financial crimes. And we're going to talk about one very specifically here in a second. I think when those, when those, things, hit the, when those things hit the headlines, I think there's a tendency for, for lay folk, like the hosts of this podcast, to be aware that there has been a crime, uh, to, be, you know, to be engaged by some of the details, but, but how the whole case is built is really kind of a mystery to us. So if you don't mind, can we begin uh, with maybe our most famous financial criminal of the moment, Paul Manafort, <laughs> talk a little bit about how his case provides a window into how how the government and especially Treasury investigates and builds cases of financial crimes. Yeah, so perfect timing. It's been quite a week for Paul Manafort, um, as we all know. Um, and a great so week for financial crimes in general. It's been a great week for financial crimes in general. And um, I'd love to share some of the financial crimes one-on-one with you. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Treasury in particular, about the 
Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN, where I used to work, and why that matters, why it's the hot agency of 2017, 18, and 19 um, that folks don't usually talk about and, and most folks haven't even heard of. Um, so It's Vincent, a very hipster agency in that respect. It you know, is. We were, we were into financial crimes long before anyone Yeah, else. I know. It's true. I was kind of proud to, um, to early in 2017, uh, raise the roof for Fenson on this, uh, on this whole presidency, for, for example. Um, so Fenson is, it's, it's a part of Treasury under the Terrorism and Financing, Finance and Intelligence piece of treasury. And what they do, which is rather sexy, is they enforce the Bank Secrecy Act. And the reason that matters is FinCEN has the authority to basically require banks, all of our banks, financial institutions, even casinos. Does that sound familiar? Um, Anyways, they require all of those institutions to basically information they see suspicious banking activity. So sort of the easiest way to think about it, and I am giving you a little background because I think it's helpful for context, is we all know that rule when you, you know, have a, as as we all do, have a wad of cash of, I think, 10,000 or more. Maybe it's 15,000 at this point. But anyways, when we have a wad of cash like that and we walk into the bank with our wad of cash and briefcase and open it up, um, the the banks are required to have us fill out paperwork. Um, and the reason that exists is because that looks a little funky. Most of us don't walk around with that kind of cash. And so I do. Vincent, I don't know about other people, okay. but I do. <laughs> All right, Meg. No, that's right, 100% Maggie, a lie. That's enough. Because, Great. Yeah. Um, I'm taking notes. <laughs> so, yeah, good. So anyways, when you walk into the to your bank with that kind of cash, they're required by law, and Vincent is part of that, um, to basically fill out a report about you because it's a little suspicious. Most of us don't walk around like that. So what they do is they get your name, your information, and they're asking about the source of this money um, because back in the day before financial tr- transactions were all over the internet, um, people would launder money that way. They would, you know, perhaps get paid for, I don't know, I don't know, taking somebody out, have a big chunk of cash, and then they put it in the bank and then buy their mama house or something like that. So that was sort of a long time ago how money laundering worked. And FinCEN very early on had the ability to regulate that. Today, obviously, that's not how uh, professional money launderers operate, and they use all sorts of means um, to move money around. So they may um, they may still get a big chunk of cash from a job well done and buy their mama house, but that information is now tracked through the banking systems. And so day to day, what that means is that let's say you normally have five thousand um, dollars coming into your bank account a month. Um, and you're and that's your normal sort of banking habit. Well, all of a sudden you start getting checks or wire transfers of 150000 130000 $200,000 from countries all over the world. That looks suspicious. And banks have the requirement, frankly, to fill out what are called suspicious activity reports, send those to FinCEN, and then FinCEN analyzes them. If they're analyzing them and things are looking funky, they have the ability to turn that over to the FBI. Why does all this matter? Because very... Um, 
it's very possible and very likely that anything Paul Manafort's done, anything Jared Kushner's done, anything Donald Trump has done is already in the government's possession going back years and years and years and easily could have been handed off to, to Mueller, to SDNY, um, to all the um, law enforcement and prosecutorial pieces of the puzzle that we're hearing about on a day-to-day basis. So when you think about ostrich coats or carpets, even fancy jewelry, um, that, those are ways that, um, I guess, clever or not so clever criminals might be able to um, take ill-gotten gains and spend them in a way or hide them here unsuccessfully, but hide them in a way that authorities won't notice that they have money that they shouldn't have. So, for example, you get paid for helping the Ukraine and you've got to do something with all that money because it can't be sitting in your bank account. So you start buying gifts for people and yourself and you start buying fancy suits, you buy fancy carpets, you might buy jewelry. And the idea is that all of these places where you're making these purchases also can possibly be regulated by FinCEN and may also, just like your bank, have to report that kind of behavior. So, for example, jewelers are regulated by FinCEN. So, and I hope this isn't too wonky, but the idea is just that, like, you can't just walk in and buy, like, $50, millions worth of, $50 million worth of diamonds with cash and expect nobody's going to notice. That's just not normal behavior. And so these are the types of ways that the Treasury Department gathers information from the entities that it regulates, and then they have that in their possession. They're able to analyze it and then ship it off to prosecutors and the FBI. So do y'all have any questions so far? Because I got a little more to add to that. Okay. <laughs> so the, uh, what I found sort of fascinating there is I, I had no, no idea that the regulation of that, the, that purchasing hard goods mm-hmm. is also reportable now. That is I was absolutely just going to say that. Yeah. I was just yeah. going to say that. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, jewelers make so much sense, but like other, like other luxury brands, like, I don't know if I had that much cash, I would be buying clothes. I would be right. buying a boat. I would buy an apartment. Like, but also right. like you're talking about a ton of money a um, ton of money so like, where are there like other industries like jewelers that are that yes. are involved in that so that's why thank you for asking that's what i wanted to tell you about i want to talk to you about real estate um so and this is frankly what tipped me off frankly no pun intended frank um but anyways this is what tipped me off back in 2017 to sort of start raising the profile of Vincent and frankly making sure that folks on the hill were talking to Vincent. um so one really good way to deposit your ill-gotten gains in that big old suitcase or briefcase full of cash is to start buying buildings with cash. So um, for all of us- who, one of us has. I mean, who Yeah, I was like, for all of us who collect um, cash for our crimes, um, we got to do something with it. And, you know, it's hard to deal with millions of dollars and just have it sitting around. So why not buy a building in say Miami or LA or New York city? Um, well, Finson figured this out <laughs> several years ago and basically has established a program, um, where they use their statutory authority to create what are called geographic targeting orders, GTOs in the true government way of creating acronyms for all of us. So GTOs, 
um, are basically, basically what Finton has said, and they started out with a couple of cities and have now expanded it to more cities, but they basically said in these geographic locations around the country, we are seeing a lot of cash purchases of real estate that we think are money laundering. And because we are spotting this kind of criminal activity in these certain geographical areas, including South Florida, including New York, including L.A., when we see this, we are now, with our statutory authority, going out and requiring additional reporting of certain financial entities. And so where it hits, um, in particular with the GTOs, is title insurance companies who are involved in purchases of um, of buildings and other real estate now have additional reporting requirements when they are approached and cash transacting with the real estate purchases. So again, putting this, you know, at the level of you or me or Manafort, for example, if we were in Miami and wanted to um, deposit our money somewhere that felt safe, and we wanted to buy, you know, a big 15-story apartment building, um, and we were working with a title insurance company, they would say, huh, how does this person have so much cash? Who is this person? Now, the issue that comes up is that often these criminals who are may try to be smarter than you and me um, do the cash purchases through shell companies, and they may create a company which doesn't really seem to do anything um, to make the cash purchases. And so the title insurance companies are supposed to be digging under that a little and start asking questions that they can then report back to FinCEN. And what we know is because FinCEN has been, keeps keeps reauthorizing these geographical targeting orders and expanding their reach, so having them target other cities, um, we know it's garnering um, useful information because otherwise they'd be shutting the program down. Um, so they're getting good scoop from that. And with that, they're able to then um, turn it into actionable reports that they can turn over to law, other law enforcement components of the Depart- of Department of Justice and frankly, Homeland Security or wherever else they need to. So yeah. should I be taking my vast ill-gotten gains from subverting democracy in, uh, you know, in, in various former Soviet republics and using it to buy property in Denver? <laughs> I don't know about I'm trying to remember if Denver's on the list. I feel like you should go lower key that go like St. Louis. Yeah, exactly. Um so it's to me this is all very interesting and I'm hoping it's interesting to you all as well. Um just to think about how there is this sort of universe of folks who are literally just sending money all over the place to try and hide it. Um, mm-hmm. Because most of us don't want to hide our money. Most of us are grateful to have whatever money we have. Um, these guys operating in the world in which they operate, they know they can't sit with it. And so they're spreading it around. Um, and, and frankly, what they're you know starting to see, going back to the original point, is that the U.S. government already has the receipts on it. It's what they do with those receipts. Um, in a case like Paul Manafort, which is turn them over to law enforcement and have them back up a case for for um, financial fraud or money laundering or false statements, wire fraud, all sorts of things can then show up um, and land you in a green jumpsuit and in a wheelchair. Yeah. I mean, 
I, so I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. And mm. um, I've read a lot of stories about how like in Midtown, there are these like multi-million dollar apartments, buildings that are just empty. Because right. Because the oligarchs have just dumped all of their money into buying apartments that nobody actually lives in. Um, I know. And it's, I mean, obviously it drives up the cost of living even more because even though exactly. bonkers expensive, but that like, right. these, I, I, it just never occurred to me that these buildings would be sitting empty because, um, they're because just a place to house money. It's a place to house their money as opposed to like yeah. putting your suitcase of money in the empty apartment. It's, exactly. you know, let's buy the whole building so that's where it lives, which is crazy. Right, right. Which is crazy, especially in a city like New York where people could actually be living there. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, it's a waste, <laughs> right? It's a waste. It's a total waste. I feel like there was a, a cold open for 30 Rock when Liz and Floyd were going to um, buy an apartment together because Floyd got a new job. And some like Saudi like prince comes in and is like, we'll take it. This is where we'll keep the motorcycles. So I was like, yep. that's money laundering. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's it. See, you didn't even know how much you knew. Mm. And yes. is some, is this, how much of this is because... Uh, these various moneyed interests are looking for a return on their money and how much of it is just so they can have a place to park it so they can later leverage it and spend it, right? Some of this is about repatriating money that was earned illegally outside the country that they just want right. to be able to spend in some way, not even necessarily to invest it. They just need to be able to right. move it into the country so they can spend it later. Exactly. So, I mean, you ask a question that places us all in the mind of the criminal because I don't know what they're thinking but I can tell you that I do think it has to do with just having it housed somewhere um and having it I I mean certainly not in the case of um real estate but in other in other capacities having it having the ability to move it around um may be key depending on who you are and and how much money you need to be moving. I mean, look, and sort of a side issue, but something to keep in mind is um, when you look at, when you hear about like foreign fighters um, with ISIS and Syrians and stuff, when you, when you hear about those types of situations, you know, agencies like Vinson are taking a look and they're trying to figure out where's all that money coming from? Who's funding these people? And we work with other countries to figure that all out. So even, this week, I will tell you, with the horrible New Zealand shooting at the mosques, I mean, our our government has the ability to partner with other law enforcement, um, or not, well, we certainly partner law enforcement, but the ability to partner with other countries' um, law enforcement, homing our own systems and trying to figure out what happened. Um, where money come from? It comes from. So when they have the name of the defendant, the guy who did the shooting, they can check every country who you know who participates as a partner of ours, like with the Five Eyes. We all have the ability to look up this person's name and say, have they come through our banking system? Has money gone through you know from here to there through the United States banks? And and do we have the ability to figure out was this guy alone? A lone guy was he funded by somebody um and god forbid it you know hopefully it's not somebody in the united states but that's the kind of information that that um fincen has the ability to to come through and frankly help um in any situation so i realize it's a side issue but it is kind of interesting to think about um the the insight that our government has and other governments have into the financial systems which is why they have receipts, which is why there's always going to be a trail. And that's just so important. This administration's, uh, I think it's fair to say, transparent contempt for the concept of international norms and cooperation 
has been disruptive to a number of functions of government uh, and less disruptive, I think, to others, it's fair to say. Is this something, is, is this an element of, of, law, of international law enforcement and, I mean, it's, that has been disrupted by this administration's tendency to move away from cooperation with other countries, or is this continuing, has this been largely immune from that, do you think, or are you in a I think it's pretty immune. I honestly do. Um, I just don't think that, I think that, you know, when you look at an agency like like FinCEN, which is run by a career prosecutor who I used to work with at DOJ, um, and it's always run by somebody who has who is career, meaning not a political appointee, um, and who has the law enforcement chops to back it up in the law enforcement relationships, they're not going to mess around. They're just not going to mess around. This is, I mean, anything that goes to our national security and the security of our homeland, um, at this kind of level involving violence, like we're going to be partnering with other agencies um, in other countries as much as we can. And I do think that a lot of that is falls under, um, it falls under this administration's uh, purview in terms of uh, disrupting. So, which is, I think reassuring, hopefully it's reassuring yeah, to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, like the last I, bastion of functionality. <laughs> um, well, I feel like, what, number one, I feel like the, the old adage of follow the money here absolutely yes. is true, um, which bet. is wonderful. Um, and now that I, I feel like Frank and I both know how to crime a little bit better, yeah. yes. personally. I have a business welcome. plan I have to rewrite if you'll excuse yeah. me. You're welcome. <laughs> wonderful. I think that uh, I would love to talk a little bit about using um, some powers for good, um, if you don't mind. So, um, Julie, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you um, got involved with slash the inspiration for Moms for HRC. It was uh, mm-hmm. it's my favorite part of your bio, personally. Thank you. A little bit about that initiative, how you got started and sort of what, your, what inspired you to do so. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. So um, interestingly, it was I left FinCEN to do this. Um, and so um, back in 2016, I noticed that um, a certain woman named Hillary Clinton was uh, had... Um, won the primary. And I had been talking at home to my family, which is my husband and um, two teenage daughters. And I was like, if Hillary is the candidate, I really want to stop working and um, help propel the first woman to be president. So um, I got my family on board with that. I felt like, you know, Vincent had things under control without me staying on board. And um, I basically started talking to the Hillary campaign and saying, okay, where's the thing for moms? Like what do moms do? You know, how, you know, I helped, I was very high up at DOJ. I was high up at a smaller agency, you know, FinCEN. What can I do? Um, I know how to get um, SHIT. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word on here, but anyways, I know how to get a lot done and um, I know how to run things. And so how can I help? And they were all, they were like, that's awesome. You can knock on doors and make phone calls. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, happy to do that, but like, I can really get things done. And the bottom line is that when you aren't working on a campaign, and I wasn't working on a campaign, um, you're, you fall in this group called your grassroots, and you can kind of do what you want to help the candidate. So that's what I did. They didn't have anything for moms. Um, and I basically saw this need where I had a lot of women friends here where I live in Bethesda, Maryland, the DC area. 
um, who were like, yeah, I'm totally voting for Hillary. And I was like, well, you need to do more than vote. We need to do more than vote. We need to get active. Um, I had friends around the country who were in the same boat. And so I launched Moms for HRC with the idea that um, moms have sort of unique hurdles to getting involved with campaigns. Um, For example, they have small kids, big kids. Um, They're already tied up with work and PTA and soccer and carpools, and they just don't have a lot of time. And the minute you say to, to a mom, hey, can you volunteer for this or can you get involved, her her sort of gut is going to be like, I can't take that on. I'm too busy. And so what I want to do is sort of break it down. Working on a campaign is, doesn't have to be all in, you know, all encompassing and helping a candidate win has a lot of different looks to it. And so what, um, what I ended up doing with that is basically creating this grassroots group around the country and, um, and, you know, sort of letting the Hillary campaign know what I was doing. Cause I, I'm from the government, I'm used to bureaucracy and the fact that I had all that freedom to do whatever the heck I wanted was making me slightly uncomfortable. So anyway, that would be very unnerving. It's like, you yeah, do, I don't have to check anything for a second. Just do it. I know. I was like, I could just say this. Um, <laughs> so, but anyways, um, so I would, I would be checking in with them, but basically, um, I started to teach moms around the country. Well, you know what, you know how you take two hours to sell Girl Scout cookies at the giant grocery store Safeway? Well, how about instead, or in addition, you take two hours and you sit outside that same grocery store and you just register voters and it's nonpartisan. All you're doing is saying, are you registered to vote? And it only takes two hours and you would be helping the campaign if you did that. Or, um, I, I, you hear a lot about phone banking and a lot of people my age in my mid forties and, and older women are not comfortable with the idea of picking up the phone and calling strangers. And certainly folks were worried about getting like Trump voters on the other end of the phone or prospective Trump voters. So they wouldn't, um, they didn't want to have that confrontation with the public. So, um, so I was like, all right, if you don't want to do that, how about you host a phone bank party? And all that means is you open up your home, you, um, allow people to use your, you know, electrical sockets and you give them some wine and cheese and that's all you have to do. And I had one friend who had never done anything politically and she opened up her home and like 15 of us would come over and we would set up with our um, laptops and headsets, just like we're doing now. And uh, we would in her home make calls to voters. Um, We had a list of, of, Democrats or independents, we didn't ever get that list of Republicans and we would just call them and, you know, sometimes they'd hang up on us. But basically this friend, the host with the wine and the cheese would see that it really wasn't that hard that people, you know, nobody was like crying on the floor, you know, being stalked or, you know, like it really was just talking to people or, or accepting the fact that you were hung up on. Um, And so by the second time she hosted this woman, she was ready to start calling people herself. So, was starting to come up with ways to sort of lure people into getting politically active that met them at their level. So it met them um, where their needs were. So I had a friend who lived across the street who was like, yeah, and all this makes me really uncomfortable. Well, at the end of the campaign, like those last October and November weekends, there were these launches from um, Bethesda, Maryland for people driving to, um, Pennsylvania for the day, because in blue Maryland, we didn't really need to be 
um, doing as much on the ground. But in Pennsylvania, which y'all know is a battleground state, it was really important. So we were, I guess the campaigns wanted to have these launch breakfasts for the people who were traveling from Maryland to Pennsylvania. So my mom friend across the street who had little kids said, I can do a launch breakfast. So she and her kids got up early, bought bagels and muffins and coffee and made signs like go Hillary. And they brought them to the launch site from Maryland to sort of get all the canvassers who are traveling to Pennsylvania ready to go energized and excited. So that was sort of her way of doing what she could. And of course, you know, some people, I just hit up for cash. <laughs> I'd say, can you make Hell a yeah, donation? Now we're, now we're <laughs> oh, yeah, that also and helps. they would do that too. But anyway, it was sort of just figuring out like, how can I get people engaged? And, um, and it's, it, it was in a, really one of the most satisfying experiences I ever had was trying to show people and get them to come back and do more and um, feel like they had ownership in the process and that um, they would be, to the extent that the candidate won, they would be part of history electing the first um, female president. So yeah. that's what I did. Um, and now I had to change the name you know, cause right. the HRC part, we needed to move on. Um, so I'm now, yes, moms can, cause I was trying to think of something uplifting and, you know, Obama did the whole, yes, we can. And, but I needed moms in there. So, um, so now I am still politically active and, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and just trying to make sure serving as a resource to, um, anyone I can just, teach them this is how you do it if you want to get connected no matter where you are I'll do it and I've had amazing reaction I mean strangers on Twitter Instagram will message me you know like especially before the midterms they're like I want to do something can you help me figure it out and I will sit there and track it I'll be like where what's your zip code I'll help you find it um either myself on the internet or through all the connections I made across the country um when I did moms for HRC so yeah. it was a really positive experience. And by the way, I had two teenage girls watching. Um, and I always sort of look at what I'm doing through the lens of um, being a mom and knowing I'm serving as a role model and working hard to make sure my kids are seeing what it means to be engaged and um, part of the larger community and part of the larger world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's such a uh, it's such a kick-ass ex, uh, example of what being an organizer actually means. I think a lot of folks think working in politics is something like scary or you have to be really, really, you know, like in the weeds, like policy nerd to do it. And in right. reality, the real work of politics and getting someone elected is building relationships, coming together, right. Um, right. talking to people like that. That stuff is so important. And honestly, who better to do that than moms? Moms, That's what I moms think. are little organizers in their campaign of a home every single day. Um, That's exactly right. And, That's exactly you know, right. I, had a, I had a similar story-ish, um, Julie, you know, when, yeah. when Hillary won the primary, I really started thinking about what I wanted to do to be a part of it. And so I quit my job, um, was an organizer awesome. in North Carolina. Um, cause I you couldn't were. not, yeah, I could not, you know, um, <laughs> right. and for me, like the best, best volunteers I had, uh, were, were women, usually retired women. Um, but yeah. I had a little posse, um, of young moms and they called themselves Yay. the liberal ladies. They had uh, a listserv for themselves uh-uh. so they could like, so they were already self-organized. Um, right. and they were like, you know, we liberal, like women have to stick together. Cause then like a Southern, 
town. It was in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, they didn't want to feel pressured to be more conservative. Um, and even right. some of their friends were really nervous about volunteering with us because they didn't want, like their husbands were probably not going to vote for Hillary and they didn't right. want other people to know. They, right. um, I had one woman ask if she could phone bank in the back in case anybody like walked by the office and saw her in there. Um, but it's you know, real, it's, it's real. The husband real. thing I think was mm-hmm. real. I think yeah. that was a big issue. And you know, that's part of like, you're your own independent voice. Nobody's in that booth with you when you're pulling the lever. Like, exactly. so it's, it's, um, it's a message that's got to keep coming out. I mean, we totally. got to think about it in terms of, can we elect a female president? Um, and how do we get women okay with that? Even if their husbands aren't, um, even it's a big husband, issue. Yeah. Or like, right. I- a couple of times I would be, you know, phone banking and, uh, the husband would answer the phone and I would ask, you know, is, is Mrs. Smith home? And like, they'd ask me who this is They're like, Oh, she doesn't want to talk to you. And they right. wouldn't hand me the phone. I'd be like, you know, frankly, sir, cause it's the yeah. after I would yeah. uh, really like to hear that from Mrs. Smith. And he's like, well, she's, she's never going to talk to you and like that sort of thing. So, um, I think there's also she's little... barefoot in the kitchen. Exactly. Like she's, she's cooking my supper. Yeah. <laughs> truly, she truly, truly have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I love that, you know, you, you, you pretty much heard a call and then just, just acted upon it. I think that can be really difficult for people and finding a way to meet people where they are like hosting something, like all of these little things, I I think people think are very helpful and they really, really are as, as an organizer constantly was looking for spaces to put all of these volunteers. I can't confirm everything helps or even just like bringing us water. Like, yes, it always makes a difference. Exactly. So, and the other thing I would add, which was part of the funnest um, day that we did is because, again, it was um, the first female um, candidate running or, you know what I'm saying. It was because we had a woman to support. Um, One of my big events was I held a family-friendly fundraiser for Hillary. I ended up raising $25,000 in one day. Um, And the whole day I had people donate pizza, they um, donated cotton candy makers. So a friend um, had a band. He had his band played. They, um, we had a friend who had a pool in their backyard. And I set up all these like activities for kids so that little girls could come. So we had like coloring pages with Hillary. We had a, one of those cardboard, cardboard stand-up um, Hillary's that you could take selfies with Hillary or you know, like we had red, white, and blue um, cookies with the her logo with the H. And like, it just was all about making kids excited and bringing your kids along. Um, and it was such a fun day and just an amazing experience to see like an entire, um, you know, community, moms, dads, kids, all getting excited for yeah. the potential we had. <laughs> for for our, our jaded Politico uh, audience, which you know, yes. I, I think is probably probably prime is which I suspect is most of you. Um, no, I think for uh, for our jaded Politico audience, or for those who are, uh, you know, I know we have a couple of early career Politicos who listen to this thing as well. This is a really good example of an important thing that the campaigns tend not to do well. Because organizing is run so much by numbers and by math, and and Mags, you know this. I mean, you know, you know by by heart, particularly. Oh, yeah. You know, you've got to have a certain number of calls produces a certain number of volunteers produces a certain number of door knocking shifts produces a certain number of phone shifts and so forth. There is a natural tendency to focus all of our to focus on that 
serving the machine, right? Serving the numbers, make your calls, knock your doors. And that, that is, I, I, when I am in a field role, I tend to devolve into that myself. And that is, and you can win a race that way. But so much of building an effective volunteer donor base, uh, you, know, vol- you know, volunteers, donors, supporters, any of this stuff is about developing a sense of tribe and a sense of like of community and, and kind of almost family, right? You're developing relationships right. to both of your points. Um, and in order to do that, you have to meet people where they are. Uh, and this, like, and, and so what, you know, the, but the, so the point that I'm sort of want to pick up on here is you have done all of this stuff that campaigns don't take into themselves, right? The, the building, you know, the, the giving people food, the service, like building events, right. really building a sense of community and you right. are translating into real things, right? This is the thing, right. like doors were knocked, phone calls were made, money was raised. None of those would have happened if you hadn't done the community building that you needed to first. Um, right. This is why this kind of thing is so important. Why I'm just so incredibly right. impressed by what you've done. Thank Aww, you for that. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. And I should add, I had a team of moms around the country who were doing it in their local communities. Um, we would have, we, you know, I found. I just basically started asking all my friends. I would, I would message friends on Facebook and be like, "Do you know anybody who'd want to do this and work with the local field offices?" And so we had folks in Florida, North Carolina, two in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm trying to think North, oh, I said North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, Missouri, California. We had people, moms doing this on the ground. They were, I, I called them. It was funny because the campaign said, we need see if you can get some moms to be team leads. And I said, you know, no mom's going to be a team lead. I'm going to call them liaisons because if you call them a team lead, it already sounds like too much work. If you call them a liaison, you just have to talk to the campaign and talk to the moms in your community and get them to do stuff. Then it's much less daunting. And so, so much of that is really about how you frame it and how you ask. Um, and I have these incredible women around the country um, stepping up and doing it and, um, and helping me along the way and helping spread the word. That is, first of all, that's terrific messaging. I mean, you're not a team lead, you're a team liaison is just, I mean, it, that's just classic. These aren't troops, they're advisors. Yeah. I love it dearly. Um, right. And I, I look forward to seeing what this this organization does in, in 2020. Uh, and speaking you. speaking of 2020, uh, yes. let us move on to. So you have a, I mean, this this role, yes, moms can has given you an interesting perch. You have conversations with a lot of a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats around the country, mainly women, I right. suspect. Yeah. Uh, and they talk about candidates with you, I think, probably as well. And I want to talk about one candidate. We haven't talked about Amy Klobuchar on the uh, on the podcast before. Because, and we really, we've been kind of waiting because we think you have an interesting perch to see how people have reacted to some of the stories about her that have come out. Uh, for our listeners, in case you, you may have may have missed this, uh, Amy Klobuchar, a senator from Minnesota, is running for president. Uh, she w- has been the subject of a number of articles uh, fairly recently about her treatment of her staff, uh, alleging various forms of mistreatment of her staff from, uh, from uh, you know, from untoward remarks to more serious things like throwing things at them. Uh, and, uh, and there, there is one element of it that uh, up to and including when people leave her staff, um, they, uh, she has apparently been known to, to call the bosses in their new jobs and try to get their job offers rescinded. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk about the way she treats her staff and, and the reaction amongst, uh, amongst liberals and progressives has been really interesting to this. Um, so, uh, Julie, if you don't mind, can you tell us kind of how your audience, cause people I think see. Klobuchar has presented herself as the senator next door. She's she has right. she is a mother herself, right. and she's presented herself as being like she could kind of be your neighbor, right? That's, and she's done a good job presenting that, uh, and she's done a very good job cultivating that image and, and presenting it. How how have people reacted to this news and to her? 
Right. So it's interesting. So I have this, these followings, um, on social media, um, both Facebook with Yes Moms Can and on Twitter. And uh, sometimes I put stuff out there just to sort of get reactions. And sometimes I put myself out there. Sometimes, you know, I'll share articles. Sometimes I'll share my own personal views um, in, at, on purpose to generate discussion. And I'm, I'm grateful because the followers on both platforms are very happy to jump in. And so what I've seen um, and the position that I've been taking, and I have to be honest, um, I've been taking the position that there are a lot of people who are bad bosses and I'm okay with the idea she's bad because we're happy for her. But if I think she's otherwise qualified to be president, then I'm not going to let those kind of, those stories get in my views of her qualifications and her ability to lead. So that has been a bit of a controversial position. Some people agree with me for sure. Um, and I, you know, I've seen that, but I've had a lot of people respond to that view saying that they don't, you know, if she's not a good person, this goes to her character. Um, if she doesn't treat people well, she shouldn't get the right to be president of the United States. Um, and it's been very interesting because I, I, I certainly have had my share uh, or how about this? I haven't had my share of bad bosses. I've seen my share of very bad boss behavior. Um, and thankfully, it hasn't been directed at me, but I've been close enough to witness it. And I've seen it both from men and women. And the two in particular that I think about from my time, um, for my 20, almost 20 years in government, the two that I think of in particular who were just like really shitty to the people who worked for them. I'm oh, sorry. Really, um, really you not can swear. I do it all the time. It's all we do. Go for it. <laughs> all right, fine. Really shitty to their, um, to people that work for them. Um, both of them, if you said to me, um, I mean, one guy came out through, he had a phone, like one of those big old phones. Remember when we had big old phones in the workplace, you know, it's like the size of like a, big laptop. And he just threw it on his secretary's desk with all the wires hanging out. He's like, get somebody, get me a phone around here that works. He basically threw this phone right in front of her. It could have hit her. Um, and it was just a real, it was just obnoxious. Like who does that? Nobody does that. This guy went on to be the, uh, he became, went on to get nominated to be a cabinet secretary. Um, he was Senate confirmed. If you told me he's running for president and I otherwise agreed with his policies, I'd go for it. I wouldn't not vote for him because I saw him do this really crappy thing to the people that work for him. I know a woman who regularly would um, just drag people down in emails at, at work and she would literally, you know, like you hit reply all, she'd keep everybody on the chain and just emasculate somebody that I worked with. And she was awful. That being said, I think she's totally qualified. Um, and if she was running for president, I wouldn't say she's not equipped to do it because she's not a very nice person. So that's my perspective, what I've seen. And I'm curious to hear what you all think, but what I've seen, um, online is that some people are like, I, I just couldn't do it because she's not nice because she seems like a jerk. Yeah, I think, so I am a bit, um, I haven't super decided where I land on this conversation mm -hmm. about Klobuchar and um, her treatment mm -hmm. of folks. And I think that, I think that your perspective is interesting in that we already have an abuser in chief. I don't really know if I'm prepared to excuse that kind of behavior 
from a Democrat because it might be someone that I happen to agree with a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also really believe that we, that there is no separation between personal and professional, especially in a job like this, which demands the most from the person Mm -hmm. who is serving in that spot. And Mm -hmm. like, just like I can't separate, you know, Maggie on Saturday and Sunday from Maggie who goes into work. If something bad happens to me on the weekend, I'm going to be feeling it when I go to work. So the idea that someone who uses their power over other people to intimidate and to scare them and to cause fear or embarrassment in them, because that's what throwing stuff is meant to do no matter what. Mm -hmm. I don't really know if, if it's, if there is even a distinction between that. And if you're going to be asking for the most power in the land, I better trust you with it. So that's, that's where it's coming down for me a bit. The other side of me thinks like it really fucking sucks that I have to sit here and listen to people say like, well, Amy Klobuchar doesn't seem that nice. No right. one gives a flying fuck how nice Beto O'Rourke is or Cory Booker. Like no one's going to be talking about them like that. And I can't deny that that doesn't really make me upset in that like the, right. the I feel like the only reason why this is coming out is because Amy Klobuchar is a woman and people are like, right. why you're supposed to be so nice. And I'm sure that there are tons of dudes who have run for president who have thrown shit at their employees. Um, right. but, and we will never hear about that story. So right. I, I'm definitely on come down and can argue with myself about this for a while. Um, but, so yeah. Oh, I was going to say, and I, I mean, one question I have is, all right, but, but, but here's the distinction for me. I'm not going to work for her. She's never going to throw that at me. I never have to deal with her on a day-to-day basis. That, if that's my argument, then why does it matter what she does a thousand miles away? Well, Trump's as never going to grab she... my pussy, but I don't want him to be the president. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's still bad. My Southern sensibilities. Sorry. Oh my God. It's okay. <laughs> I also really hate that word. I think it's super gross, but it was the quickest example I came I up with that like, I don't need to be personally You're attacked right. by someone to You're think right. that they're a bad person or that their You're behavior right. isn't excusable. You're right. <laughs> Frank, help. No, no, it's, I, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I am not going to pour oil on these waters. I'm going to stir them instead. Um, okay. But, uh, but I think the, the part, I, these, these are all, these are reasonable points, right? And, and it, is, it is absolutely galling that, uh, that uh, men who have run for office at all levels have been able to get away with significantly worse than this and not have it talked about. Um, that's, I, and, and that is now coming home to roost on Amy Klobuchar particularly. That mm-hmm. is ridiculous. She is mm-hmm. far from the first senator to, to do this sort of thing. And, and it is, that it has centered on her, I think is, you know, I mean, re, you know, reveals the patriarchy in, in, in all of its twisted glory. Uh, all of that said, freeing ourselves from the behaviors we associate with it, using intimidation in the workplace, uh, you know, is, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean we stop, we don't talk about it when women do it. It means right. we talk about it when everyone does it. Right. Uh, and and it it is it is you know just a it is just deeply unfair in some respects that she is the fir- that she's the one that we are focusing on now. All you know, here's the part of this that really sort of con- that that kind of concerns me. Ultimately, there there are two there are two things here. First, this is basically it seems to me a labor issue. Um, this is a boss who has people in her who has people over whom she has power and status, uh, and who you know uses various means to uh, to make them feel unsafe in her employ, uh, sometimes physically unsafe by throwing things at them, throwing things around them, right? Like you don't do like, she doesn't do that with other senators. She does that with people who are weak, weaker than her. Right? That tell, I think that, that tells you something about her as it would tell you about a man who did it. 
Uh, right. You know, this is the sort of argument like, you know, if a man shows a lot of temper around employees or his family, whatever, does he do it around everyone? No. Well, then he's picking his moments, isn't he? Um, Klobuchar is doing the same thing, it seems to me. And the, the facts of this are really in dispute. So there is some, and, and her staff have said that that, you know, that that kind of the churn that has created has made it difficult for her office to function at times, whether it has or not. The mere fact that she is doing this from a position of power to people in a subordinate position is a labor issue to me. Um, and that is that does make it relevant. More troublingly to me is the tendency to call is the is this calling of bosses when people have yes. left your employ to get their offers rescinded. That reveals something to me that says this is a person who wants staff who don't have a future without her, who know they don't have a future without her and are wholly dependent upon her. And I am deeply suspicious of candidates uh, of a, you know of any gender or stripe or anything else who need staff who are wholly dependent upon them because ultimately. Among other things, that reveals a you know some a, some unmet emotional need, which I would rather a candidate not be carrying, and also staff wholly dependent upon candidates for their futures don't give good advice right. because they you, have like, skin in the game because they'll do anything they have skin in the game they'll do anything they can to keep you upright regardless of how badly you have fucked up. Um, you know, you just, you cannot trust the advice of a staffer whose only career is, is you, right? You can, if the person can, and it's very difficult. A lot of candidates struggle with this because you need loyalty. I understand that desire. You want familiar faces. Being a, being a major political figure is hard and weird. Um, and, you know, and prizing loyalty is a really, is, is very understandable. Uh, but, but there is, but the most successful ones, the ones that I think have really been able to, 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 you know, leverage their positions and, and make it work for the public good are people who understand I'm going to get good people around me and good people are going to go on, want to go off and do their own thing. And I want to encourage that rather than punishing people right. for trying to, trying to do well, trying to do, trying to take their mission and do right in the world elsewhere. So this right. to me is why it is particularly relevant. Um, and, and I just, I, it's, it's hard for me to overlook it with her. And if, and we should, and the fact that there are dudes who are, who are for sure doing it as well, we should be talking about that and condemning them equally. This is ridiculous. Right. I, I have to say that, the, that the piece that bothers me the most is what you just mentioned, which is the calling future employers, um, or prospective employers and, and trying to get in the middle of somebody's career advancement or career progression. That to me is a different level of having a temper tantrum or having, you know, your stress level so high that you take it out on the people who are immediately around you. Um, the, the sort of intent and calm that it requires to pick up the phone and make that phone call and make that case to me is puts it, um, in a much less comfortable place. So I actually, I hadn't heard, I mean, I didn't, I didn't read the story or had been following the story too intensely closely, but I hadn't actually heard that piece, which is, uh, yeah, that's, that's always a bit of a red flag. But I think the other thing for me is, um, and this is sort of separate from the like moral conversation, uh, that we've been having, but I consider myself a relatively politically aware person. And I really didn't know who Amy Klobuchar was to be quite honest. And I think that's true for a lot of people in the country right now. And now this is the first piece of information that people know about her. Um, right. Like this is how a lot of folks are being introduced to Amy Klobuchar. And I feel like that's just got to be so, so tough. Um, that's going to be such a huge hurdle for her to get over um, because this is now the narrative that people know her for. And that right. she's probably, right. this will dog her forever. Like, right. she, I mean, um, she's, yeah, which sucks. I mean, she's saying, I agree. I mean, she's saying um, that you need that kind of level of toughness to deal with Trump and to deal with Putin. Um, and look, she's not any female candidate. And I believe this to my core, um, has a very tight, 
uh, rope to walk in terms of coming across as um, somebody who is capable of being the commander in chief and really towing a tough line, but right. also coming across as um, warm. warm and not a bitch. And, you yeah. know, like all the things that, um, that we've heard about in terms of electability and likability. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I should say, I should, you know, like, I definitely would like a female candidate to win. Um, I don't have a candidate right now. So I just want to make that clear because I'm, I I am defending um, Amy Klobuchar in terms of her, uh, in terms of, I don't think it's right how we treat female candidates and we need to look at both. Um, And I also think that you don't have to love how somebody operates in the workplace um, to love how they govern. But um, I, I, and so I just, I'm not ready to sort of throw in the towel um, and say she's not qualified. I just think we need to be fair. And that's, I mean, Frank, that's at the end of the day what you were saying, and I think Maggie as well. Um, but I do think it's important that we question it and not just shut it down with, she's mean, I'm not going to vote for her. For sure. And, and that's, this is exactly right. And it's, it's getting the hearing that it deserves. And, and ultimately, you know, this, it'll be taken to, in her case, I suspect it will have its own self-corrective, which is we know she's had trouble hiring staff because she has this reputation. Um, and, and people will put, people will put up with like political operatives will put up with a lot. Like we're not, right. we are not a bunch of shrinking violets, right? Like we're used right. to difficult bosses. Uh, so, right. the, so that in and of itself may have its, may have its corrective. Um, I mean, the, the last thing I think is, you know, Mags, you were talking about, you mentioned that this is the first time, this is the first information that people are getting from about Amy Klobuchar, uh, within DC at least, and which was the place that I just left, uh, but, you know, was there for a number of, uh, for a number of years, uh, not as long as, as you, Julie, but amongst folks who sort of, you know, either had, were on the Hill or had Hill friends, this is the thing she is known for, like being, being the bad boss, the difficult boss, among difficult bosses. There is another candidate who is running right now who is also known as a very difficult boss, and we haven't really talked about it all that much, and I don't know that we should. That's Kamala Harris, has blown through staff as one of the highest staff turnovers in the, country, in the, you know, in the Senate. You know, this to me, and it's, it hasn't really been discussed much. We haven't gotten much detail for it, and I'm not sure it's 100% relevant. Like, it seems to me that she probably is a somewhat challenging person to work for. Um, you know, unless we get some, unless that can be fleshed out a little bit, that's, there's not really, really any reason to talk about that. With Klobuchar, we have a lot of specifics, and it seems particularly egregious. So, it is, it is interesting to me that there is another woman running who would, in some respects, might, might have come in for this type of criticism, but has been given a pass on it, possibly, probably, justifiably, uh, in part because Klobuchar has taken the, is you know, has stepped up as a particularly egregious right. example of this, which I think is interesting. Right. Uh, so it remains to be seen how this plays right. out. Um, I would argue that a good portion of the country um, has also seen some turnover at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody blinks at that come 2020. Sure. Who the good boss is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Truly. Although the turnover at the White House honestly makes me a lot happier than the turnover. Oh, of course. <laughs> for those staffs. And like, I'm just yes. going to be honest about that because why not? Uh, absolutely. I think we're all on the same page. Totally. Um, Well, this has been a fantastic, fantastic conversation. Julie, I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to have you on the show. I I personally feel like I can do crime way better. I can organize way better. (laughs) 
and you know, just get, get my thoughts organized on, on Klobuchar. So this was Klobuchar. We've helped you hone those. Yes. Yes. It was something, it was definitely something worth interrogating, you know, (laughs) a couple of times to, to Frank and Ellie uh, in private, but that sometimes when there's something, you know, happening in the news and I'm not really sure how I feel about it, it probably, it's the perfect topic um, for the podcast to be able to explore that, you know, with other people, because I'm sure other people are feeling the same way as well. Right. Um, well, I'm so grateful to y'all both for um, having me on today. I was about to say this morning, but it's not the morning anymore. It's not the morning anymore. <laughs> that's fine. Um, well, thank you again, Julie, and uh, to our audience for sticking with us as well. Um, please be sure to give us a rate, give us a comment, uh, a share, uh, wherever you uh, listen to your podcasts. Um, and please be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at TakingShip. And that ship with a P as in pie. It was pie day recently. Um, Julie, where can people follow you on Twitter? Thanks. Um, I'm at, at Yes Moms Can on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. Please be sure to give Julie a follow. Uh, and with that, Frank, uh, where are we headed this week? So we are headed this week, actually appropriately enough on St. Patrick's Day, we are headed to Dublin, Ireland, where uh, the sea has joined the fight. Uh, I want to direct everyone's attention to this terrific, terrific headline. Uh, from Vulture. Uh, Nicki Minaj's Dublin show is thwarted by the sea. Uh, It seems that Nicki Minaj was unable to perform in Dublin uh, because the Irish Sea uh, rose up uh, with the, uh, you know, the the, the same uh, force uh, and and chaotic energy that one associates with the Irish people uh, and prevented her equipment from making it across to do her, across the Irish Channel to make her, uh, to do her show. So the sea has taken a Nicki Minaj show from us. What are its nefarious plans next? This, uh, again, in Vulture, uh, from a series of, from an article tagged, The Cold and Unforgiving Sea by Anne Victoria Clark. Uh, Anne Victoria Clark, welcome to the fight against the sea. Uh, we go now to Dublin uh, to, get, to get our own back against the ocean, which has prevented a Nicki Minaj show. Uh, happy St. Patty's Day, y'all. Thanks, everybody.